Recently, I had the pleasure of talking to Scott Thornbury, a giant in the world of English language teaching. He is a teacher, a teacher trainer, an award-winning author and speaker. And he has been pushing for change in the way we teach languages for more than 20 years. We spoke about teaching and teaching philosophy and especially what teachers can do differently in the classroom and the importance of social learning. I hope you enjoy it. Scott Thornbury, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me today. My pleasure, Christian. Um, so just before we start, for the people who don't know who you are and don't know your work, could you just introduce yourself a little bit? Yeah, I'm, uh, well, I call myself a teacher educator. I, most of my experience has been involved in training teachers, both at uh, pre-service and in-service level. Uh, of course, before that, I was a teacher myself. I've taught in uh, a number of countries, Britain, uh, Egypt, I taught for many years, and I presently live uh, and work in Spain. Uh, I'm from New Zealand originally, and I've, uh, my professional activities uh, have taken me to many other very interesting parts of the world, including uh, Australia, New Zealand, uh, East Asia, South America, uh, Central Asia, uh, most of the countries in Europe, etc. So, and that's that's my um, role as a methodology book writer. I write books about methodology, and I write books about language. So, um, and I also teach on a master's program for a university based in the United States. Um, that's about it in a nutshell. <laughs> that's, I think that's quite a lot of things. I think you should be quite happy with that. <laughs> um, so my first question to you really as, you know, as a teacher trainer, as a person who teaches teachers, um, what do you think is, is wrong? What do you think are the things that are wrong with the world of, of English teaching today? Well, I mean, I'd be putting my neck out if I said categorically that there's uh, anything wrong, I suppose, I mean, because there's so many contexts in sure. which English is taught, and that's the thing, and you can't necessarily transfer the, the what works in one context, uh, for example, teaching small groups of privileged Europeans in a private language school in London, for example, to a completely different context, which may be teaching a, a 45 um, 12 year olds in a public school in Thailand and the two things don't necessarily, I mean what, all they've got in common is the English language as being the subject but the purposes for which uh, the learners are learning the language the the resources that are available, the time they've got available etc make all, and the obviously in the, in the, the quality of the teaching the, the native language of the teacher and so on produce all sorts of variables that, as I say, it's very difficult to generalize across these contexts. So I would be very nervous about saying what's wrong. I mean, I think uh, if I had to say something very generally, uh, what's wrong, and this is what's wrong with education, I, I would say, in this day and age, is a, an obsession with testing and an obsession with testing not uh, 
performance, as it were, not how well you can use the language in terms of how effectively you can communicate, but what you know about the language in terms of its itty-bitty grammar, etc., mm. which is easier to test, but of course it doesn't add up to what represents a person's proficiency. And it seems to me that testing, particularly standardized tests, international exams, etc., are having an, an enormous kind of washback effect on methodology. In other words, if you are teaching learners to get through a particular examination which involves learning what I call grammar McNuggets, tiny little bits of grammar, then of course that's what you're going to teach. Uh, and when all you are teaching is grammar McNuggets, you are missing out on what language really is and what it does. It's not just an accumulation of little pieces of grammar or accumulation of the words that you've memorized off a word list. It's the whole caboodle. It's everything working together and it's essentially a skill or a number of skills. And unless you're teaching the skill and unless you're doing the skills in the classroom and unless you are testing the skills, the whole thing becomes very... Uh, sort of academic, essentially, mm. uh, very far removed from what languages were designed to do and, and very far removed from what most learners want to be able to do with their English in the long run. Yeah, exactly. So um, that's what's yeah, no, look, I, I feel the same way. Um, uh, yeah, and definitely, I mean, I live in Spain the same as you and you know, here there's definitely an obsession with grammar and and testing, and it's more really they're testing how good your memory is, right? It's just more about memorization than real kind of learning. Um, and and I suppose that that brings us on to the next subject, which I was hoping you could talk a little bit more about about dogme, which is what uh, I don't know what to call it—a philosophy, a methodology. Um, um. Yeah, uh, a way of life. I don't know. I mean, dogme, just to give you a little bit of background for those who are watching who don't know, was uh, a response to a felt need that I and my colleagues had in our teacher training courses here in, in Spain that um, teachers, and this was like 20 years ago, that the teachers we were training were so dependent on their resources, their materials, their course books, their technology, etc. that they were missing the bigger picture, which is, really relates to what I was just talking about with exams, that they were becoming uh, focused on teaching the course book, for example, and not teaching the learners, or teaching the, the grammar McNuggets in the course book, but ignoring the communicative effect yeah, well, well, actually, I have some text here that you actually wrote on a Yahoo group 20 years ago, oh, yeah. and, um, and it says here, um, we are a mix of teachers, trainers, and writers working in a wide range of contexts who are committed to a belief that language learning is both socially motivated and socially constructed, and to this end, we're seeking alternatives to models of instruction that are mediated primarily through materials and whose objective is the delivery of grammar McNuggets. <laughs> We're looking for ways of exploiting the learning opportunities offered by the raw material of the classroom. That is, the language that emerges from the needs, interests, concerns, and desires of people in the room. Now, well, 
uh, and and this this sort of leads me into sort of two questions. The first one is, isn't that kind of common sense? And the second thing is, in the twenty years, how much change have you seen? Because that seems to describe a continuing problem, like even mm -hmm. now. Um, yeah. No. I mean, good question, Christian. I mean, um, the. The first question, what was your first question? The first question is, um, like, is, isn't that common sense? Isn't that oh, how yes, we should okay. sort of teach yes. language? <laughs> exactly. And I think one of the things, when we proposed uh, that uh, teachers perhaps become less dependent on their materials and focus more on what's going on in the room, uh, a lot of experienced teachers particularly said, well, that's what we do. That's what we've always done. Uh, you're not telling us anything new, and I think this is a this is proven research that's been done into teachers' uh, life trajectory or professional trajectory. It shows that yes, most teachers start off being very dependent on materials on the course book, uh, very focused on techniques, etc. And as they start to become more fluent, as it were, in their teaching and um, their classroom management and the routines that they've learned, they become they free up and they become more responsive, more reactive to the learners. And I think this is this is what most teachers experience. And I think, I guess what, what disappointed us in our teacher training courses here in Barcelona was the fact that we, we were getting many teachers coming for training who had been teaching for three or four years, but we still seem to be very hooked on Grammar McNuggets. Mm -hmm. And so what we did, we were rather radical and said, well, listen, we want you to try teaching with fewer materials and being more responsive to the learners, more communicative in the sense of the communicative approach, which is after all what 20 years ago these teachers were subscribing to theoretically, but they were, weren't really doing in the classroom. Uh, and we saw tangible results when we said to the, the teachers, like, stop, leave, leave all those materials behind and interact with the learners, set up activities which involve the learners talking about or writing about the things and interacting about the things that really uh, concern them and then you know use that language that comes up that em emergent language as the kind of content of the lesson so yeah well i mean that's that's I'm, actually I'm one of the th that's that's one of the, the the three sort of parts of dogma is, is is when you start you take a vow of chastity um and basically you're, you're you sort of say i'm not going to use a workbook basically right it's part of the philosophy yeah i mean when we when i first wrote the article that came out which sort of launched dogme inadvertently i have to say because it was just a small two-page article which simply said we're over dependent on materials and i used the analogy of this scandinavian film movement which was had five years previously said we're too dependent on technology and making films let's go back to the basics i thought well that's a nice analogy so that's how it started just as an analogy as a metaphor if you like um it didn't it was never intended to be a method but further down the track after attracting quite a lot of attention after a very busy uh discussion group online uh my colleague luke meddings and i decided it was time to put together a kind of synthesis of what dogma in a sense represented in 2009, and we wrote a book called Teaching Unplugged, which was basically ideas for teachers um, to, to, to or routines or techniques or activities, which in a sense gave them 
a foothold into this philosophy if they weren't there already. But as you just said, of course, a lot of teachers for this for them it was common sense. We weren't telling them anything that was necessarily new. Mm. Um, but for other teachers, they needed permission, I think, to say, yeah, okay. Everybody, every teacher that I've ever met, including myself, has always will refer to particular great lessons they did. Say, oh yeah, that was the that fantastic lesson I did, and often. Often it was a lesson that was accidental, that <laughs> arose because there was a power cut or because the photocopying machine wasn't working or because they couldn't get online. And so they had to kind of like wing it. Uh, and what they discovered, these teachers, is they had not only did they have resources in terms of managing the class and improvising as they went along, but the learners had resources. And when the learners together in a class pool their collective knowledge to do a task, it's quite amazing what they can come up with. Yeah. So every teacher has a memory of these experiences, but they didn't kind of, they don't realize that perhaps these are uh, not, shouldn't be the exceptions, in a sense should be the rule. They need to be given permission to say, yeah, back off, back off from the course book, from the technology, etc. from time to time at least, in as much as your curriculum permits, in as much as your institution permits, but take you know take advantage of those things that happen in lessons. When a, when a student comes in with their leg in plaster, for example, you don't ignore the fact. You say, "Oh my God, um, Juan, what happened?" And they tell you the story about how they broke their leg playing football, and that that will elicit other stories about accidents and so on. It's, so what dogma did was gave a label, a name to something that a lot of teachers were already doing and recognizing as being fully effective in, in the times that they did. And the students responded. And we often get stories of teachers saying, yeah, yeah, I did this lesson. And the student said to me afterwards, can we have more lessons like that? <laughs> so it's something everybody kind of is on the same page, but nobody's actually said, yeah, yeah, it's okay. And, of course, one of the things that has interested me in the 20 years subsequent to that first article is, yes, your point about how, watching how dogma has evolved or not, as the case may be, but also how um, there, a lot more research evidence has come in which seems to validate those basic principles that the best language, the most memorable language, is the language that emerges out of a communicative need and then which is shaped scaffolded or whatever by the by the teacher and you mentioned the word i think social at one point that yes it was in that description of dogma the social basis of language and of language learning is something that has become very prominent in those 20 years since dogma was first proposed and that's essentially what dogma was trying to do is trying to socialize language learning by by bringing language back to its original purpose, which was is to cement social ties effectively, or to allow people to become socialized into a particular community of language users. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, day-to-day -day classrooms haven't changed because of dogma, but I think a lot of teachers around the world are probably doing things that they wouldn't have done before without feeling a little bit guilty. And now perhaps they feel less guilty because it's got a name. Yeah, well, I think that's a really interesting thing is that like, um, you know, if, if a teacher's out there on their own and the administration's given them the workbook and it's kind of, you know, as a teacher at the end of the day, you know, you have a responsibility to do your job. 
as decided by your superiors. And and maybe if, if somebody comes along and says, hey, here's an alternative, and it's not just some sort of hippie kind of, you know, let's just sit around and talk. It's a real you know, a real um, methodology based in science. Uh, it's almost like you give them permission to then go off and, and do that. Um, and, well, I mean, look, I, I actually have this, this book here. Um, this is actually from 1939. It's 80 years old, okay? And it's called How to Write, Think, and Speak Correctly. Because, you know, uh, in the past, the, the whole idea of language was very connected with the idea of, of, of sort of how to think, right? And there was... And, and I picked this up from my father-in-law's house because I was going to have a laugh about how far we've come in 80 years and have a laugh at how old-fashioned, you know, the thinking was back then about language. But I actually discovered that this is much more in line with, with, with kind of what you're doing. And, and, and this is really out of step with, with, modern, with, with the modern way of thinking. And, and in fact, just, just as an example... Um, there, there's a section here talking about um, about how to be a good writer, um, how to be a good writer, and and it says um, it says here I would say that on the whole it's better to have something to say and to make mistakes in saying it than to have nothing to say and say it in faultless language. Um, and I'm and and that sort of gets back to my question, like how how did we forget these? How did we get in this sort of mess well i mean yeah i mean first of all yes christian i'm a, i myself am a great collector of old methodology books because in fact i mean i've got a few uh here i um because exactly that because of the kind of uh how they often however old they are they often have these pearls of wisdom in them because good teaching is good teaching is good teaching and actually hasn't changed uh, in 100 or 200 years. Um, this, there have been pendulum swings in terms of methodology which have taken us, which have blinded us at, at times to what really good teaching is. But the, the, that's a very good point. That there's nothing, in a sense, new under the sun. And one of the things, again, about dogma, just as a, as a footnote, is that one of the things we discovered is we had this online discussion over those 10 years or so when the, after my article came out, was a lot of people were bringing other stuff to the table, saying, look, this is what somebody said in 1960, or this is what somebody was doing in the 1930s. Isn't this amazing? Because it's all consistent with this kind of view of education. So the question is, yeah, what did we do wrong? And I think there's always been this tension in education generally, uh, not just in language education, but education generally between, if you like, the sort of progressive school, which is where learning is considered to be more uh, experiential, uh, whether it's through play, as in kind of Montessori schools, uh, or through doing things, through creating things, through making things. That there's a long tradition of progressive education going back to the turn of the last century and even and beyond. The contrary force has been what the kind of academic scholastic scholastic approach, which is uh, learning facts, learning the facts of the language, what, what, what is sometimes called in the literature positivism. It's learning these little, what I call grammar McNuggets, but it, it might be geography, it might be history, it might be mathematics. It's the same thing. You've got to learn the facts and then you are tested on them before you get a chance to put these facts to any kind of like use and often that that putting to use is so deferred 
uh, it's so postponed mm. that the learners often within the course of their whole schooling never get a chance to actually engage with mathematics or engage with biology etc in a way which uh, which makes sense to them. And I think the same is true of language teaching. So, that, and, and it has been driven to a large extent by testing, as I said before, by the need for standardized tests. It's much easier to test facts than to test performance. Um, that's a challenge, but it's not a challenge that's insuperable. Uh, so yeah, I think that's the, the history of education, the history of language teaching has been very much a kind of pendulum swing between these two poles. The experiential on the one hand, through learning through doing and the knowledge-based scholastic academic on the other hand learning through knowing facts well that, it's really it's really interesting that that I, I sort of feel like your argument comes it almost comes back to a lot of the root of the problem maybe isn't so much in the classroom it's the obsession with with standardized testing seems to you know f well it feeds back right because it you know you start teaching to the test and then you just end up you know, like a robot, basically. It's a vicious circle, exactly. Yeah. So, um, and, well, I, I'm curious, I mean, wh why do you think that, that, like, well, well why, why do you think that dogma hasn't been, um, you know, wh why isn't that just the default mode, if you know what I mean? <laughs> well, I think, I think for many teachers, it is. Uh, interestingly enough, if you talk to um, teachers who started their teaching career sort of backpacking around Asia doing English lessons, I'm talking about a particular demographic here, probably young native speaker, um, uh, gap year kind of kids, you know, straight out of university, what are they going to do? They go to Vietnam for two years and they teach English without any training. And they have a ball. They love it because they don't have the techniques. They don't know anything about the grammar. They just engage with the learners uh, and have conversations. I'm not saying this is a good thing necessarily, but if you talk to those teachers, many of them then, if they decided that they liked teaching so much they, that they went on and got some training, they, get, they were very disappointed in their training because uh, it sort of, it acted, it, it acted as a constraint. It prevented them from doing the kinds of things that they, they really used to enjoy with teaching. A lot of people go into teaching with a kind of visionary, you know... D dead poet society. <laughs> exactly. Well, exactly. Now, I'm not saying that's necessarily a good thing, but it's often knocked out of them to such an extent in their initial training that many people just forget it, leave it, drop out. But this is no fun. I, this is not why I went into teaching, to teach the present perfect continuous. Uh, so, I, as I said before, so for, for some teachers, this is the default. It's like the social socialization, the social approach to teaching, learn, to teaching language, learning through, through doing, learning through speaking, learning through conversation. Um, I'm not saying, of course, that's the true for all teachers. Um, but as I said before, many teachers then, if they don't start off like that, they often end up like that. that this is something that they kind of uh, gravitate to because they realize that this is not only more motivating for the students, but more motivating for them as teachers and also possibly more effective. And this is where the research now is starting to show, yes, actually, task-based learning, for example, 
which is really task-based learning was the kind of um, framework within which dogma developed. If you think task-based learning, learning through tasks, um, experiential learning, and so on. Task-based learning, a lot of research has been done on task, on, into task-based learning and it's shown how very effective it is, particularly in certain contexts where you can predict the kind of things that learners will be, able, will, will be needing to do with their language. So it's not the default necessary across the board. I mean, there are other reasons why it's possibly not the default. And I wouldn't want to blame uh, testing alone, but I think the um, publishing industry has some responsibility here and publishers tend to lag a little bit behind uh, current methodology. They're always a few years out of step, uh, but they in a sense set the methodology through what they do uh, and public publishing mainstream uh, general English course book publishing is still very grammar driven despite this kind of lip service they pay to being communicative. They're not really. You look at the syllabus of any major adult general English course and you'll see that it's the traditional grammatical syllabus going through from, you know, verb to be, present simple, present continuous and so on, all the way through to the third conditional. That hasn't changed. Um, and, and because course books are considered uh, indispensable in language education, they are drivers of that particular view of language. Uh, and it will take a lot, because there's so much money invested in them, of course, it will take a lot to dislodge the course book from its powerful position. Yeah, well, I mean, I because recently I spoke to um, Jennifer Jenkins from Southampton University. I don't know if you know of her work. I or, do know Jenny, yeah. Yeah. Um, and... And she basically said that the problem is there's, they're just making so much money that there's just no incentive to change. There's just, and not just that, but um, they're scared of sort of helping to implement change because if they do, then the whole thing could come crum crumbling down and they could end up losing, you know, everything, basically. Yeah, I mean, I think that's uh, an exaggerated fear. I don't think um, dogma has shaken the foundations of... Uh, course book publishing or ever will. Uh, it's too well established. And also uh, education generally is so book oriented even, you know, across all subjects. Uh, and there's very good reasons for that. I mean, teachers, many teachers in their day-to-day -day lives are teaching so many hours uh, and maybe having lots of other things to do as well, like, you know, bring up a family and cook and feed them that they don't have time to sit around indulging in, oh, what, the, what would a nice lesson be if we just did X, Y, Z instead of using the course book? The course book offers them, of course, a, uh, a, a, a fixed and reliable syllabus, and they can just move through it from page to page, and it saves an awful lot of... And so I understand that. I completely sympathize with that. Uh, I think... Uh, nevertheless, I think even teachers working under those very tight constraints could sometimes perhaps that close the book and just for five minutes, ten minutes in a lesson, open it up, ask the learners to talk about something that may be of general interest and see what comes up, then have them write it down, hand it in, correct it, hand it back, etc. And that's a nice little lesson cycle. Well, that actually brings me to my to my next question, which was sort of, um, which is if 
because maybe, well, I imagine that there are some teachers out there, you know, like in Thailand or Vietnam or, or, or maybe Russia who, 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 who their job, day-to-day -day job is teaching these McNuggets and, and the only thing they know is the course book. And as you said, maybe they're, they're new to the game. They don't have the experience. What, what would you say to those teachers? What could they do differently to sort of help their students? Uh, good question. I mean, I think um, it's a similar question which is asked about to, to proponents of task-based task learning. How could we turn a traditional syllabus or a traditional course book into something which is more task-based? And I think um, one suggestion, and I, I didn't make, make it, but I mean, I think it's a, a good one, is that in a sense, you, you take that same material, but you turn it on its head. Now, if you look at any course book unit, uh, any general English course at least, it traditionally uh, follows a kind of PPP approach. That is, some language is presented, then it is practiced in varying degrees of control, and then there is some production activity, either a spoken task or a written task or both. And along the way, there'll be some reading and some listening activities. And that's a pretty pretty kind of uh, standard... Um, yeah, like flow, right? Unit, yeah. If you... For change, I think one of the things you could do is start off with... Turn it on its head, as I say, and start off with the production activity. So go to a speaking task that's the end of the unit and say, we're going to do this. Uh, do it just as well as you can. I mean, talk talking here about learners who are probably beyond a kind of very basic level, but learners who are anything that from sort of um, intermediate and above, maybe you don't actually need to teach them all the language which the course book assumes that they need to know. Maybe you could use the, the production activity, the speaking task as a sort of diagnostic task. Say, okay, let's do this. Um, let's do it, rehearse it, perform it, etc., record it or whatever, and then let's go back and see what it is that we could do that would improve it if we were to do it again. Okay. And that's when you might want to go back to the beginning of that course book unit and say, well, obviously it would have helped you doing this task if you'd had more vocabulary about X, Y, Z, or if you'd have this particular grammatical structure, uh, in which case you can then teach those and then go back and do the task again. You may find, of course, that you don't need to go back. The students are perfectly good and they've got enough, between them at least, they've got enough uh, language knowledge to be able to perform the task perfectly adequate, uh, if not fluently. So, um, but that's particularly at a higher level. So you save yourself an awful lot of time. They might be teaching things which are actually redundant because they already know them or they know them well enough to be able to uh, incorporate them into the, into the activity. So this is, it's a sort of, um, it's a test, teach, test, if you like, mm. approach to lesson design rather than a present, practice, produce. I think experimenting with that from time to time you start to learn, A, what your learners are capable of, but also what you are capable of as a teacher in, in terms of responding what it is that what when things come up, you think, oh, my, look, students don't seem to be aware of this, so I'll stop them, teach it, and then they can go back and do the task or continue the task again. Well, I think that's, um, that's pretty solid advice. <laughs> Um, it, it, it's funny um, that, that the whole the whole philosophy, you know, is based on this 
the Scandinavian film movement, right? From um, uh, was it Lars von Trier and I can't remember the other. Um, and because I don't know if you if you if you know of the playwright and writer David Mamet. Yes, I do indeed. Yeah, he um he he wrote a book about how to make how to make films because he directs films as well. Okay. And in the first, this is the first chapter of the book. He says, the way to make any film better is to burn the first ten minutes, because then the audience comes into the film and they're just like, Brilliant. what's happening? I don't understand. There's no there's none of this sort of character development. And do do you, do you think that it would be an exaggeration to say that? English teaching in general would be better if we just burned all the textbooks? <laughs> <laughs> no, I would never go so far as to say that. I would make myself very, very unpopular. Uh, but sec- secret- and- secretly, do you think that? <laughs> um, I think the David Mamet uh, quote is great. I wasn't aware of that. And I think, um, yes, I, I like the analogy you're making there of saying, well, maybe if not burn the textbook, at least dispense with the first presentation stage of the lesson, the first 10 minutes, as it were, which is actually not often 10 minutes. Presentation of grammar tends to expand to fill the time available for it. That's then another problem. And there's no time for the production activities. But if you start with a production activity, then um, chances are that there will be more, more minutes of real communication in the classroom than had you started with the grammar presentation. Huh. That's one thing. Yeah, you um, might suddenly look and go, "Oh my God, forty-five minutes is gone. My my lesson's exactly, over." Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. The other thing is the first ten minutes of the lesson um, are key uh, in terms of setting the mood and the theme. And uh, one of the things that, of course, most teachers do at the beginning of a lesson is they have a short chat because there's people coming in, taking their coats off, opening their bags, getting, you know, dropping things of their kids. And uh, there's a little bit of, you need to cover that. So what the teacher traditionally does or is trained to do is say, you know, ask questions like, did you have a nice weekend? Have you seen any good movies lately? That kind of thing. And then the lesson will start once everybody's settled. And that. Now, it's in my experience, both as a teacher and also as a teacher trainer watching teachers, although sometimes those three or four minutes of, of pre-lesson chat are the most interesting mm-hmm. because that's when things come up which you might not have anticipated, but which are of general interest. Somebody said, I saw a really interesting documentary on television last night. Oh, yeah, I saw that one, the one about pandas. And, said, and now the teacher's going, oh, yeah, pandas, nice, write it on the board. Okay, end of discussion, we're all ready. Page 56, let's start with the exercise. Say, hang on, hang on, hang on, stop there. Pandas, right? there's general interest in pandas here. Let's, let's run with that. Let's just see where we can go with that. <clears throat> so you can get the student who saw the documentary to summarize more or less. Or you could say, okay, into groups, pairs, write down three things you all know about pandas and let's see if we've got, we're all on the same page, metaphorically, uh, and so on and so on and so on. And those three or four minutes can produce a whole, I've seen it and we've done it, a whole lesson of material that emerges out of those initial topics that the students themselves raise. Uh, So uh, it seems to me, yeah, there's a lot to be said for those first 10 minutes. Don't don't spoil them by moving straight into the course book. 
let them let's see what and if nothing emerges then well that's okay that's great we've got the course but we've always got something to fall back on well yeah no i mean i i've had that experience myself definitely where um yeah someone comes in like even little children you know they come in with a doll or something and then all of a sudden you know yeah you've got an hour of class just out of nothing yeah which is as you said um you know it was so funny what you were saying at the beginning about how you know some of the best classes come from maybe a power cut and then you know that can even happen in families right they're at home and they're watching tv like they do every night and there's a power cut and suddenly it's exciting you know they're lighting candles and talking and you know um so one sort of well i have sort of two final questions um so the first one is the reality is that like a lot of students that I have, a lot of followers that I have online, you know, they come from countries that are, you know, the, the reality is a majority of the world is very poor and a lot of um, students don't have access to teachers or maybe even to, to resources to, to nothing. So because you're not just a teacher trainee, you've also done a lot of research in the world of, of, you know, English language teaching. And like, I'm wondering what, what would your advice be to, to a student who, who doesn't have access to a teacher, but still wants to learn like how, what, what, you know, where do they sort of start? How can they, how can they learn without access to, to anything? Yeah. Good question. Uh, I, just a couple of points I would want to add that, yeah, the um, the proponents of dogma have been criticised by uh, by certain people by saying uh, it's not less materials that students need. In many contexts, it's more, uh, and you're giving you know it's a wrong message to send out that teachers should be reducing the the, the, the amount of materials they bring into the classroom. Uh, and I, I accept that there are many many situations in the world, the majority perhaps, educational situations where uh, learners are under-resourced. Uh, I, I would say that uh, it's it, that's true to a certain extent, but it's also an, an attitude thing. If you look at it, less as being under-resourced and more as low-resourced, um, then you perhaps see it less negatively. And I think... Uh, I, I guess one of the messages of dogma is to look at, if you're in a situation where you don't have many resources, don't look at it as being a completely negative situation. It may actually be something you can turn to your advantage. Um, there's a great story, incidentally, I would quoted it uh, in the dogma discussion this years ago about a teacher who, who was, um, an Australian teacher was sent to Papua New Guinea. This is way back in the 1960s or 70s as a volunteer, as a kind of, uh, you know, Peace Corps equivalent uh, to teach in a village uh, in Papua New Guinea. And he lost all his materials on his way there in a storm. Uh, the pack horse, which was carrying them, fell into a river, etc. And so he arrived in this village and he had zero materials and he had to teach across the curriculum. It wasn't just teaching language, he was teaching, you know, basic arithmetic and reading and writing, etc. So he used what was in the village to provide him with the content of his lessons. So from, from, for arithmetic, for example, they would go into the field and they would count, you know, how many beans in a row and how many rows and multiply, et cetera, et cetera, uh, you know, stuff like that. And he said when he finally did get the materials delivered, the second lot of materials from Australia, six months later, he looked at it and he said, well, actually, we've covered everything in the curriculum simply by using the 
here and now using the media resources. So it would be wrong to suggest that uh, low resources means is a necessary and negative thing. Uh, having said that, coming back to your your uh, your basic question is how can a person with limited access to resources uh, and, also, and also maybe they, not a teacher and also like learning on their own. Yeah. Yes, learning on their own. Uh, what can they do? Um, well, I'm assuming that you're implying that they don't even have access to the internet. I mean, I think the internet has changed radically the situation for the autonomous learner now. Uh, I mean, it's just, especially for English, of course, there's no shortage of material that you can get. And I have been to parts of the world which are pretty remote uh, and are pretty uh, low resource, but one way or the other, uh, people there have access to the internet, if not in their homes, at least in some sort of local center, whatever. And that, of course, provides an enormous amount of text which is both spoken and written which um, is not necessarily organized for them and this is the challenge i mean the internet it's like there's so much there the the, the challenge is how do you select and how do you um how do you understand what there is what resources do you can you use but i mean i think a little bit of training uh and experience a little bit of common sense can help learners uh, access material on the online, but they can't access material online, uh, but they can access print material, uh, then obviously reading, extensive reading is uh, what many people, pre-internet, what many people did to keep their language kind of topped up, particularly in terms of learning vocabulary. Uh, so reading reading stuff that you're interested in, if you can get hold of it, whether it's fiction or non-fiction, whether it's graded or non or not graded, and using a dictionary if you've got one to um, check the meanings of words. I, there's no harm in checking the meanings of words you don't understand, particularly if you then go and write them down. So it does mean reading, stopping, writing something, looking it up, writing it down, etc. But then going back to those word lists and then committing them to memory. Uh, and carrying on. So it's not just reading, it's reading and vocabulary acquisition. And that's actually going to be a huge help for you. Uh, even if you never actually produce any of that language, um, building up that, uh, that, that mental dictionary, if you like, is going to be an enormous resource when it actually comes to activating the language. So um, that would be my number one advice is, is read and listen if, you, if you've got access to audio material, uh, movies, etc., that are in English with subtitles or without. Um, there's a lot of stuff out there that can keep you topped up, as it were, particularly in terms of vocabulary. Okay. Okay, great. Um, so one, one sort of way, one, one final question I have is... Um, you know, I, I know because I get messages from, from these people like every single day. Um, and, and I have to admit that, you know, my, my focus, I know that your focus tends more towards teaching in, in terms of um, teaching teachers. Right? But my, my, my focus is more on, on students just because that's just what I do on a day-to-day -day basis. But like I'm wondering because obviously the reason that you create a dogma is because 
you believe that language is much more than grammar McNuggets. And I'm just wondering if you could sort of, what, what, what words do you have to say to those students who, who have probably spent their whole life receiving grammar McNuggets? They hate English class. They think that English language is just a bunch of rules to memorize. You know, what, what would you say to those, to those people who are just disillusioned and just, just want to give up and just hate language? I would say one word, Lexus. That is to say vocabulary. Forget the grammar. I mean, the grammar, English, one of the reasons English has been so successful as an international language is it has relatively little grammar when you think about it. There's very little inflection in English, both in the noun and the verb phrase, not like language like Spanish or Turkish or whatever. We're, we're a very pared-down language, uh, like Chinese. Um, and you can get by with, mm, actually, very little grammar. Um, you need your past tense, you need some present tense, you need some modal verbs. You need to be able to construct a noun phrase, you know, an adjective noun. Uh, you need uh, to be able to form questions, and that's tricky. But apart from that, there's not a huge amount that you need to learn really to become communicatively functional, except vocabulary. And that comes back to my point before about reading, essentially. But not just reading and reading, but reading and stopping and collecting words and then going back and, re and reviewing them. Think in terms of, say, 3,000 words to start with as a basic kind of like um, threshold before you can become a fluent reader, and maybe up that to 5,000. Uh, but not just words, also phrases. That's why I said Lexus rather than vocabulary. Lexus meaning not just individual words, but expressions, phrases, formula, formulaic language. There's been a lot of interest in that in the last 10, 20 years. And it does seem that a lot of spoken and written language is formulaic in the sense that it is not individual words that have been pinned together, but sequences of words which are used again and again and again. Mm. Uh, and so paying attention to those and keeping lists of expressions as well as uh, individual words and forgetting the grammar, you know, put the grammar aside. Grammar, as I said before, there's not a lot of it. Uh, and you can make yourself very, very, very communicatively proficient by using uh, words and formulating expressions. Yeah, because I mean, you, you sort of, you said, well, in, in, your, in your paragraph from 20 years ago, it said that, um, you know, language is, is basically to, to sort of fill the, the needs and desires of the, of the people. I mean, I mean, if you had to describe language in one sentence, what do you sort of feel that language is, what's it for? You know, why do we have it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, this comes back to the social again. Uh, language, uh, I didn't say this, I mean... Um, the, the theories that underpin the communicative approach, I'm thinking of Halliday's systemic functional grammar, uh, move the focus on to languages has a, a social function, uh, that it is used socially. That is to say, it is used between people. Uh, I don't mean for socializing, like chit-chat. It's also used in work and in studying, etc. but that's still social in the sense that it has a social function. Uh, it's not uh, something that we simply think with. Um, and 
it is uh, it learned learned not just used but learned in social context like classrooms or even one to one situation is still social in a sense so it's it's bringing back the social mm. into our understanding of what language is what it does and how it is learned mm. and that really is the most important thing for me in terms of how my thinking has kind of shifted over the years and that's in a sense what dogma represents is kind of bringing the social back into language learning wow well um scott thornbury thank you very much for your time that was uh, that was an amazing chat Thank you, Christian. It's been a pleasure.